This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by you, our amazing patrons. Thank you for supporting the show and helping us create the AD History Podcast that you deserve. We could not do it without you. Have you ever wondered how Teotihuacan rose to become the epicenter of ancient Mesoamerica, or what it was like experiencing the great European migration into the Roman Empire firsthand? Well, do we have a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. And, you know, we came off a very, very heavy episode last time, an episode that, of course, we never anticipated making, naturally. Obviously, the war in Ukraine continues. But I, I have to say, Patrick, I'm, I'm glad it got the attention it did. Yeah, that I think unexpected is the best way to describe that video. I think even in the days prior, neither of us expected to be making that uh, podcast or video. Neither of us really expected to be taking that until we kind of came to be making it. It kind of expanded to something we just wanted to mention to, hey, let's talk about it a little bit, to hey, let's make it its whole dedicated episode. But no, that war, unfortunately, does carry on over there. And um, it's been great that you guys have enjoyed our uh, impressions on that, our talk about it. It seems we've had a very positive response, so thank you all so much for letting us share what information we have. Let's us just doing our bit in any way we can, really, for what's going on over in Ukraine. Absolutely. And obviously we don't often comment on the moment for the most part, but no. every once in a while something just jumps at you and this is... This is a generational event at the moment because we haven't seen something like this in Europe for a very long time, and it is far from over. I'll tell you something, Paul. I'm really bored of generational events happening. Like, Certainly in our like time. A, I feel like there's an awful lot of once-in-a-lifetime things happening in my lifetime, Paul. Yeah. Yep, yep. Between pandemics and wars and just everything else in between. That's not to belittle what's going on, but just... No. Let's go on something a bit lighter for this episode, eh? <laughs> Without a doubt. And today yeah. you're getting into something that's a whole lot of fun. We're getting into really something fun. that is not entirely unbroken ground, but with a great deal more depth. In which case, you're going into the Mayan classical civilization. In all Mayan might Mayan might not be the exactly correct word for this one, Paul. But yes, I'm going oh, to really? Mesoamer what, what is well, what would you? How would you better describe it? I think the best term to use would be Mesoamerican, as I'll get onto in my subject. It, like calling this Mayan is a bit somewhat contentious. Interesting. Well, mm -hmm. contention is part of our business. But mm -hmm. and on my side, in my segment, we're going to get back to the Huns, both when the Huns come marching in, as well as it triggering what we know today, at least starting in the fourth century. There are others that are called this, but. In this case, the Great Migration, that's a big topic. It's a big topic. It's, it's a very ambitious one that we're going to tackle a little later on. But 
With all of that in mind and all of it out of the way, let's lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So, yeah, if you didn't guess by uh, our little chat in the introduction, we are going to be turning our attention to the Americas once again. Though, of course, it would be a long time before they actually got that name, but it's just easy to call them the Americas for all intents and purposes. And in the depths of modern-day Mexico lie the remains of one of the most mysterious cities on our planet. That, of course, being Tehotihuacan. And this is mysterious for so many reasons. Primarily because we aren't 100% sure on who actually built the city and when it was even built. So by the time the Aztecs found the city, which is around 1,000 years after this century, so I think that's just great to talk about, Paul, like the time scale of um, Mesoamerica, South America, the Americas is so... I think a lot of people probably don't expect that. The Aztecs were around in, what, the 1400s to the 1600s? Like, a lot of people don't seem to know that. I think that's a really interesting thing to just mention here. Yeah, I believe that is uh, who Hernan Cortez ended yes. up running into. That's yeah, an interesting yeah. story. That, that That's definitely a story we'll be getting into soon enough when we get to that point. But So by the time the Aztecs found this city a thousand years later, it was already in absolute ruins. That's how old this city is. But at this point in our story, however, the city is believed to be not just inhabited, but absolutely thriving. And it was in this decade exactly that it's believed to be one of the city's most mysterious rulers took charge. That being a figure who we only actually really know as Spear Thrower Owl, which is a weird name to be sure. What a name. Yeah, we'll get onto that name in a moment, but I just want to talk about who this city belonged to, and this is where that whole sort of point of contention of it being a Mayan city comes from. It was somewhat of a Mayan city. We'll, we'll talk about it. Um, we aren't exactly sure what group of people lived in this city, because at this time, various different groups and tribes called Mesoamerica home. That, of course, includes the Mayans, but also other tribes like the Totonacs and various others like that. Though it seems that Teotihuacan wasn't the city of any of these tribes specifically. Uh, Teotihuacan, from what we can tell, seems to have very much been its own thing. What I've ended up comparing it to is like a modern day city state of sorts. Where it, has, it definitely has connections with other parts of the world. I think the Vatican City is very much very integrated into Italy. Uh, same with Monaco is very French. Uh, Teotihuacan was dead in the middle of Mesoamerica, but it seems to have very much been its own thing. It could even have been like some sort of neutral ground. And with evidence of various different cultures being found here, from Mayan, of course, but also from people like the Mistecs and the Zapotecs. So many different cultures. Like it's, You can't 
really refer to it as a Mayan city, an Aztec city. And a lot of places do like to refer to it as those because that really isn't the case, especially with Aztecs. Like I said, by the time the Aztecs found this city, it was already in ruins. This was not an Aztec city. You know what this kind of reminds me of in a way? It's not a perfect one-to-one analogy, mm. but in so many ways, just kind of in the way the example I'm going to mention rises and falls and belongs to some mm. people, then belongs to other people over time, then the original people come back, and it's important wax and wanes over a long, long period of time. Mm. It kind of has a hint of Jerusalem in it. It really does, you know. There is a lot of that to it. Not so much in the fact that it was claimed over, but just a lot of people coming and going. That's for sure. No, it is a lot like Jerusalem, yeah. So that was just something that came to mind there when I thought to myself, oh boy, I feel mm. like I've heard this story somewhere before. And it's it's a story that will probably come up again with various other sort of places like this. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, like places like Singapore, it kind of has a sort of similarities to that sort of place for sure. No, um, The modern city-states. Exactly, yeah, the modern city-state. And like I said, I, I it was never officially a city-state, um, Teotihuacan, at least from my research anyway. But it has that sort of similar vibe where there's lots of big things going around it, but this singular place was so important and so central. It was kind of everybody's and nobody's, really. Like, everyone came and mixed it. Like I said, it was a neutral ground, it seems like. I'm curious, though. Mm. What about it allowed it to endure? Why, why was it so valuable to even people later on you know what what about this particular city lends itself to this kind of longevity and usefulness over the long term so forgive me being wrong here i believe it was geographically very well placed if i'm correct in saying it was built in the middle of a lake which kind of just gives it great so obviously it gives it a water source which is hugely important especially in the ancient world but it just gives it great strategic, uh, strategic abilities as well. Being in the middle of like that's hard to conquer. That's hard to claim. Now let's take a look real quick as to exactly where on the map this thing mm. is, because if you're like most people, and I wouldn't blame anybody if they were, the fact of the matter is geography, and I don't need to tell you about this, Patrick, is important. <laughs> yes, yes, geography shapes history. History shapes everything, as we like to say. Well, you know what? This is interesting. Mm-hmm. This is fun. I feel a little stupid, but it's interesting on my part. It's not just, it didn't just have ancient importance. <laughs> it has modern importance. Yes, yeah. Because I, I think it might be the largest city, at least population-wise, on the American, you know, South, Central, mm. North America. The thing sits basically in modern-day Mexico City. Oh, really? Hats? Yeah, I'm just looking at it now. So, yeah, it was under former Lake Texcoco. Uh, that lake doesn't exist anymore. But, yeah, it's kind of on the remains of former Mexico City. So, yeah. Well, current like, Mexico City. Current current Mexico City, I would say. Yeah, so, like, this was, it was just, it, I guess it has the same strategic importance as modern, like, for the same reason modern Mexico City became the capital, became one of the largest cities uh, in the Americas, as you said, probably for the same reason Teotihuacan has as well. It's just just super important place. They just keep going. Yeah, they just keep, keep going. It's a part of the world I desperately want to visit. I know, like, I think you've been across the border to Tijuana, am I correct, Paul? I've been right, I pressed my nose right up against the gate. <laughs> Tijuana is one of those places where you go and you better go ready. 
And most definitely, I was not at a point in time where I was prepared to go to Tijuana. I was in, you know, the quote unquote San Diego Tijuana Metroplex, mm. which is a thing. Which it is, is an economic and, thing. And I think what's interesting, this is a real massive tangent. As someone who lives on a little island, I think I think people in Britain are really fascinated by borders and crossing borders because uh, we, we live on an island that really exists. But being able to see, like, you can see those maps of, let's like, see pictures of like, Tijuana on one side, and they're so close to each other. They're basically the same thing. It's really fascinating. Oh, I mean, in the Americas, I guess, if depending on how one looks at it, we're around one huge, huge island, so. Yeah, yeah, you've got basically a neighbor in the north, neighbor in the south, but it's just, borders are really fascinating things. And just, that, that's a yeah. really interesting, that's a really interesting case there. And it's a more uh, modern phenomenon, too, at least in terms of how they're enforced and, mm. you know, very clearly demarcated. Mm. But yeah, to our ancient city. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so I want to sort of just give a give give a little rundown of what uh, Teotihuacan would have actually been like, and it really was that quintessential ancient Mesoamerican city. If you have an idea of what like a quote unquote Aztec city would look like, or a quote unquote Mayan city would look like, it's basically been inspired by Teotihuacan. Um, it had around two thousand residential apartment compounds, had various plazas, temples, and palaces. Of course, most noticeably, it had two huge pyramids, and these were the Pyramid of the Moon and Pyramid of the Sun, respectively. And these uh, hugely important buildings were connected by one main avenue, which is now dubbed the Avenue of the Dead. Quite an ominous name, but it's quite a pretty looking thing. And what we're really fortunate about is so much of this city has actually survived, including those two pyramids. And we can only imagine what it will look like in its prime. So the pyramid, just yes. as it, just pure geometry, has always seemed to be quite appealing yeah. to architects, yeah. for, you know, going way back. And I think I'm probably going to ask kind of a kind of ridiculous question here, but you know what? Those are some of the best questions that get some always of the most the interesting best. answers. Is there even a remote chance that this was influenced? from somewhere else like, like for example <laughs> the most famous ones we all know which ones i'm talking about at giza <laughs> it may sound like a ridiculous question but i think it needs to be asked so i i really don't think there is a case for that no because that's what i wonder was there any connection and i like you said pyramids are just there's something about that shape that's captured human imagination for a very, very, very long time. And I believe the Egyptians were to point to the sky. You know, the sky has always held great importance to people of the ancient past. Like, why wouldn't you think that's where rain comes from, where the sun comes from? Of course, the sky is going to be important. So much sort of afterlife mythology around the world involves going to the sky. The Greek gods were believed to live in the sky on Mount Olympus. Like, it makes sense that we'll make these huge structures pointing towards the sky. And most Mo yeah, it rises up like most ancient civilizations just came to that same conclusion independently. So one of the reasons I asked this question mm. is because there is, and I'm sure there's going to be somebody out there that will eventually watch or listen to this, that will defend this theory to the death despite how implausible it sounds. But the theory exists, which mm. is that Romans actually made it across the Atlantic many, many centuries before you had European explorers and colonization. It sounds 
abjectly ridiculous. And I was curious if there was like some kind of strange theory you came across that was worth mentioning here that at the very least was worth, you know, worth a LARP. I didn't come across that theory, but it feels very, very, very tinfoil hat. So, um, doesn't it? Yeah, I feel like if that was the case, like we've been researching room for quite some time now, Paul. I feel if that was the case, that would have come up in our research. I haven't seen that theory at all. It's a wonderful theory. Part of me would love it to be true, but I'm just, I'm not buying that. I think it is just a massive coincidence. And even like, you've got to think about mountains surrounding, like, you know, like, People probably saw mountains and tried to replicate those to an extent as well, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, think about all that mm. has been inspired in mm. innovation and technology and architecture by us emulating and looking for how things are done in the natural world in exactly. a way that we can re replicate and improve upon technologically. Mm -hmm. And we love connections. We love the idea of things being connected to one another. But sometimes they are just big coincidences. And it's just a coincidence that these two ancient civilizations built pyramids and one one last little note on, on that that romans mm. and the new world thing because I, I found that i was like oh boy okay. i found that's fascinating if it did happen it was a one-way trip and we'll never know about it exactly yeah like and it, should it just be an accident like how what what kind of boats did the ancient romans have to survive that sort of trip like it's, it's just hard to imagine yeah <laughs> it's yeah. really hard to imagine yeah, I'm going to look into that more because that's really fascinating. I'm just yeah, Googling it now. Yeah, it's an interesting now. one. I'm, yeah, I'm going to look into that more. Maybe for a middle segment at one point, we, we, could, we could do something with that. But. Yeah, that, that, that would be funny as hell. But on with the show. On with the show. So I want to just sort of talk about the origins of this city and the fact that we don't really seem to know too much about it. We have a few theories on how this city began. And one idea is that it was founded by the ancestors of the Toltec people. And the Toltec people actually came around in 900 AD. So like I said, they're ancestors. And others believe there's another tribe called the Totonacs. Um, and what's really interesting, as I mentioned, is the sort of different mixture of cultures and people found within this city. There's one theory that goes that a volcanic eruptions uh, made thousands of people uh, flee the valley they were living in. And there was actually all these different tribes mixing together that formed this city of uh, Teotihuacan because just that kind of explains why there are so many different cultures. There's almost a city of refugees, a lot of people from different tribes coming there and building the city together. It's a, it's a cool idea, that's to be sure. As for when it was built, that date is debated too, but some actually believe uh, the city was founded as early as 400 BC. And just as a quick comparison to Rome, um, Rome was well into its Republic days by then. It's always great to see how the Americas is doing compared to Europe at various times. We just, I just want to have a quick note on that name of Teotihuacan. Uh, the city would not actually have been called this by its inhabitants and when it was inhabited. This was a name given to its ruins by the Aztec people. And it means the place where the gods were created and what an epic name that is and this shows us just how revered these ruins were to them the aztecs actually believed that this was the ruins of the gods themselves and i just found that really cool it's interesting because there are so many sites around mm. the world today that are most certainly not called what they were originally no no we I just mean, sort of use yeah like the Colosseum. we've talked about that in the past certainly or even yeah. let's go potentially even further than that 
I mean, did the original folks who constructed Stonehenge call it Stonehenge? No, I, I'm guessing I, I, not. I highly doubt it. It'd be great if they did, but <laughs> I, I highly doubt it. I don't know. Yeah, that, that should be a good one to look into. Oh, oh um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And here's another thing that's actually mm. kind of a cool thought. We mentioned it a long, long time ago, and long-time mm. listeners of 80 history. We look at this this place, and it's, it's 400 BC is the estimated time that it was. You know, people really started breaking mm. ground on the thing. Even in 400 BC, we are still significantly closer to the founding of this city than we are yeah. the actual constructions of the pyramids at Giza. Exactly, yeah. The pyramids of Giza are unfathomably ancient. They're so, so old. Not the oldest, not, not the oldest human civilization, but for the longest time, they kind of were thought to be the like the origins of human civilization. But we go a bit further back. We're obviously Mesopotamia, the Fertile oh, yeah. Crescent, but like Egypt is super old. It's hard for our monkey brains to process. Yeah, it, it, yeah. And speaking of time periods, so um, and, and going into the past, uh, Teotihuacan sort of history is kind of split into four distinct periods. Um, I'm just going to rattle these up quickly. So the first period of its history is thought to be from around 200 BC to 1 BC. And this is when the city was really starting to pick up speed, more, more farming going on, more people uh, happening. And then uh, period two is around 1 AD to 350 AD. This was a huge period of growth. It became the largest city in Mesoamerica. Uh, during this period, many of its famous structures were created, like the pyramids of the sun and the moon and so on. Uh, so by period three, period three was believed to be around 350 AD to 650 AD. And this was at the, uh, the height of the city's power, one of the largest cities in the ancient world. Its population is around 125,000 people, more monuments constructed, and there was an increase in art and culture. And then we have period four, which was from around 650 AD to 750 AD. These were the waning years of the city, still big and popular, but it started to decrease. Now, you're talking about period three, 350 mm. to 650 AD. That's where we are right now, yeah. And you're mentioning it being the height of the city's power, I, I suppose, mm. sans what Mexico City is today. Yeah. Power in what respect? military power, economic power, influence. What kind of power are we talking about here? So kind of a bit of all of the above, Paul. I'm going to talk about something in a moment. And it did have economic power, and it did actually have a military power. Uh, Teotihuacan actually started to somewhat commandeer other parts of Mesoamerica at the time. Ooh. So a bit of everything going on, really, yeah. Um. So, but yeah, this was really the peak of its power. And it was during this decade that, do you remember the fellow we talked about at the beginning, Mr. Spearthrower Owl? How can we it, forget him? How can we forget Miss, Mr. Owl? Or call, call him Spearthrower. His, his, his family called him. His, Mr. Owl is his dad's name, as they like to say. <laughs> but um, old Spearthrower, this, it was a bleed around this sort of time he came into power as the ruler of Teotihuacan. I looked into what exactly kind of power this was. I believe I heard him referred to as an emperor. I think it was a hereditary title Teotihuacan ruled on. So that makes sense. If it was interesting that he wasn't a president or voted in. He he's was, an autocrat. Um, yeah, he's not a hereditary yeah. autocrat. Yes. Okay. 
And of course, the question we finally have to ask ourselves is why that name? Why was he called Spear Thrower Owl? And well, name explain. Name I explain. I can't escape it. And well, obviously, much like the name Tiatoakan itself, that wasn't his actual name. We don't know what he was actually called. Another name we have for him is Aslakorak. And uh, another name we have is the mind translation of that, of Jazum Kyu. And these mean striking owl. So they have the, these names, they might sound different, but they still mean things along life striking owl, spear thrower owl. So why on earth have we decided to call him this? And this is because all historical records of him use two specific glyphs um, to represent his name. And they're exactly that, a glyph of uh, someone throwing a spear and a glyph of an owl. Uh, we don't actually know what sounds or letters or words these glyphs are represented. We don't have any sort of Mesoamerican Maya, uh, Rosetta Stone. I was just about to ask that question. Yeah, we, we don't. Well, as far as I'm aware, we don't have any sort of Rosetta Stone type find to have, which is we're darn fortunate to have that for... Um, for Egypt. for Egypt, because it was super handy to have. Yeah, but unfortunately that doesn't seem to be in the case here yet anyway. So people have just started to call him by literally what these gifts are, glyphs are, by calling him Spear Thrower Owl. And that's how we ended up with that really bizarre name, but it it kind of was his name. At least that's the best we can make of his name. Anyway, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. that's the thing about posterity is that you don't control it. No, no, we go, we work with what we have. And what we have for him is some glyphs of a spear throwing owl. So that's, that's what we go with. And we actually know very little about him as well. Uh, most of what we know about him actually comes from different Mayan sources, not Teotihuacan sources. Um, and one of these comes from something known as the Tikal Stella 31. What is that? So Tikal is a place in uh, Mesoamerica we'll talk about in a moment. And a stella is kind of like this sort of stone pillar containing information. Uh, they're kind of like rune stones to a degree, kind of like what we get in ancient Scandinavia. Just pillars of stone displaying information, ruins. And we have a few of them. We clearly have at least 31 because this one has been labeled 31, it seems. And this is the one what we have information on Spirit Thrower Owl on. And it's believed. He was the ruler of Teotihuacan, and it's believed he became the city's ruler on the 4th of May, 374 AD in our calendar. And I love this poem because as we, as we very much know, especially people who have lived through the year of 2012, Mesoamericans, of course, the minds in particular, mm -hmm. their timekeeping was impeccable. That's why we know, while we don't know a lot about uh, Mesoamerican history, we're really good with dates because they just had this incredible system of timekeeping over there. Yeah, we all lived through 20... Well, most of us, I assume, lived through 2012. And, um, well, talk about going out with a whimper, right? Oh, boy. Yeah, I know, right? I think they got it. I think, I think they were 10 years late, Paul. I think 2022 is probably what they meant. Oh, God, don't. Don't even, don't even tempt <laughs> no, it. That was a joke, of course. No, uh, was, yeah, yeah, was, yeah. Of course. Yeah, naturally, course, naturally. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not the first one to say it. No, you're definitely not. No. And, you know, doomsday predictions, you know, they, they change like you change socks. You know, pretty mm -hmm. much. It never seems to work out quite right. No. Well, in any case, so let, let's start talking about, because I'm curious about this, Patrick. Mm. 
getting into the political science of it all, you know, mm. the, the really well-adjusted kids at the party, the political scientists, <laughs> the political science majors. What do we know? Because we kind of talked about it a little bit for earlier, mm. but what do we know about how they ruled, how they exercised power? How do they organize mm. themselves? How, do, how are they led? So it does, as I said, it kind of seems to be something of a monarchy and they're very much seems to be family ties within the within all this it was like having having family members atop of different clans different tribes different cities even it seems that because teotihuacan wasn't actually the only sort of city of this ilk it seems quite a lot of mesoamerica was broken up at this period of time into different quote-unquote city states like different cities had their own emperors, their own kings, whatever you want to call them. As we will see going forward um, with Spearthrower Hour, what he did during his time as emperor, king, whatever rule we want to say, ruler of Teotihuacan. He, um, he, he, he used his power and he used his family to try and spread it around. So it seems family was very much key. I didn't see any evidence of a voting system, of a parliament, of um, any sort of democracy. It seems to have very much kind of like the Roman Empire, em, Empire was by this time, just read by monarchy. Just kind of a dynastic thing that they keep mm -hmm. knitting together. Yeah, but it's, if anything, maybe it's a bit more stable than Rome at this time. Well, you know what? That's, uh, the bar's not very high at the moment. No, yeah, yeah, the bar isn't very high right now. Bless Poor old Rome right now. But um, uh, Spearfarer Al supposedly died on the 9th of June 439 AD. Like I said, impeccable timekeeping from uh, Mesoamericans right now. Great stuff, lads. He was supposed, <laughs> and on top of that, he was supposedly an adult when he started his reign. And this is just something I read on the side. So apparently, he was a really old guy like. So he became the city's ruler in 374 AD, died in 439 AD, was supposedly already pretty old, like middle aged by 374. So Apparently he's a pretty old dude, but this is of course debated. Yeah, we I don't... mean he's like in his sixties, right? Yeah, about? yeah, yeah, yeah. A little older we than that, maybe. Yeah, we know so little about him, so it's hard. It's one of those hard things to really sort of know. What what's myth? What's fact? What's fict? What's factual? We we don't know. But he's seen as being a highly influential figure, and not just to Teotihuacan, but as I mentioned, to Mesoamerica as a whole. And this is because of his supposed invasion of Tikal. As I mentioned, Tikal was another uh, part of, was another influential Mesoamerican city. Uh, Tikal's remains can actually be found today in modern day Guatemala. Why would he want to conquer it? Why does anyone want to conquer anything, Paul, to get more land, to get more land, influence? resources, yeah. you mm -hmm. name it? I, that, that's the general conclusion on the subject. Yeah, especially you'll see once with what happens here. So uh, Tikal, unlike Teotihuacan, Tikal was a quote-unquote Mayan city. And the reason I'm quoting that is because the Mayans or the Maya, it kind of flicks between the two. I think the adjective form is also Maya, but I've seen Maya. It's confusing. Uh, the Maya were not one single tribe. Um that was kind of an overarching name for a series of tribes with similar cultures and languages. We see this today with Native American tribes like the Navajo. Um, there isn't one Navajo tribe, I believe. Am I correct in saying that one? It's so, very Yeah, mm. when you start getting into the inhabitants that were here 
beforehand, mm. before uh, Europeans arrived for the most part, mm. they're organized in kind of an interesting way, which is to say that, yeah, we think of it on a tribal level, of course, mm. but they would come into larger confederations and yeah. political and mutual defensive relationships and, and things of that nature. So in that way, that's something that most of us don't generally realize. We just think of them as kind of a smattering of various yeah. tribes over uh, the, you know, certainly North America in my case. But, you know, you, you think about the Iroquois or, you know, mm. these various confederations of various tribes that organize themselves in that way. And that's something that was even the case when for years after we showed up as well. So it's interesting because you don't necessarily think of them in that way, but it is absolutely the way they did business. You know, humans are going to be humans. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to band together at times when we're working towards common interests, and at the like very talk, least. And it's like we talked about the Hope Hall tradition pool as well. Like that was various tribes working together as one. It's something we've seen before in the Americas, before this moment in history. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No question. So anyway, I was saying, but yeah, Mayans, you hear about the Mayan tribes, the Maya, it, they were various different tribes, but they all had connection with one another. But so according to the aforementioned Tikal Stella uh, 31, in 379 AD, Spearfarer Owl invaded the city of Tikal, and this invasion seems to have actually been a success. Uh, Spearfarer Owl made his son king of Tikal in the aftermath of this invasion. So as I said, Paul, like, they very much wanted to keep in the family. He literally appointed his son the king of this city. Like, you, know, that you can't spread your... Like, if you can't literally be the king of two places at once, you like having your kid, your next of kin, is yeah. pretty much the closest you can get. I to mean, it. he's he's basically his father's viceroy. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And um, after this, he also invaded another Mayan city called Wuxatan, Wuxatan, Wuxatan. I'm going with Wuxatan. It's kind of spelled like Oaxaca. I'm going with Wuxatan. That's U A X A C T U N. If anyone wants to tell me how to pronounce that quickly, I'd be huge. That'd be huge. Yeah, seriously, submissions are open, please. Yeah. And uh, in this case, he made his brother king of this city. So it just shows he was literally spreading his own influence, his own family across Mesoamerica. And that kind of wraps up what I want to talk about today with Teotihuacan and Spear for Owl Um, I just think it's great to dive into America every now and then at this time. Of course, as history goes on, as we get more concrete evidence of what was happening in this part of the world, we're definitely going to talk about it, Paul. And it just shows, while there might not be as much evidence at this time, they had amazing stuff going on over there. That's, there's that classic image that, oh, the Americas were less, quote-unquote, civilized than Europe. But that just wasn't the case. It was a different kind of civilization and super advanced in its own way. You know, tell me they're, you know, tell me that they're far behind what's happening in Rome or in, you know, or China or something like that. Anything, I'm just not buying it. Yeah, if anything, at this moment in time, they seem to have their shit together a lot more than Rome. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, even Rome in, in its worst case <laughs> scenario is, is still, is still amazing. Yeah, and, oh God, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you know, it's Byzantine iteration. Mm. I mean, they literally existing up to, you know, the voyages of Columbus when they're eventually mm. conquered by the Ottoman Turks. So, mm. and even then, the Ottoman Turks still absorb the Byzantine elites 
into their society because, well, yeah. you know, they knew how to rule. So yeah, definitely. It's it's interesting that there, this continuity of culture it all sort of flows into one another, and that's what we try to do here on E History: explain how it all flows together. That to me is AD history at its best. Is when mm. we we see that the picture is not nearly as fragmented, mm. and that there's no reason to create lines of demarcation that not only don't need to exist but didn't exist. No. Yeah, that's and that's. That's what we're doing. Is that what you got for us today, Mr. Foot? That is, yeah. I'd say the only reason sometimes those demarcation points exist is when there's massive oceans between the two. Like, it is hard to connect the Roman Empire to Mesoamerica. But of course, it eventually does connect in the, the, Latin, the Latin American. Yeah, that, that's descendants of Rome. It does eventually get there. That cannot be argued. But right now, there is so much of a connection there. There's no arguing with that. And us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from one. Anna Domini! This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. And thank you, Anna. Now, Paul, we have a really interesting, fun idea for today's middle segment submitted by a patron. Uh, we were asked, who would we like to have on as guests to of the podcast? Not just any old random person, even other YouTubers, but historical figures. What historical figures would we like to have on as guests on the podcast? What a great question. Okay, <laughs> so what is it the kids say today? Let's unpack this one. Yeah. So there's obviously not just one. You can't no. just do one. And uh, we'll try to get some of the best ones off the top of our head here. I'm going to start this one as something that's kind of out of left field. Mm. One of the guests I think would be most interesting to have on the show, especially if he's not holding back or anything like that. He's not, <laughs> he's not playing politician is I would love to have Harry Truman on the show. Oh, okay, then. For once we reach that part of the podcast. Or, you know, or whenever Harry general. Truman comes back from the dead and agrees to come on our show. <laughs> that too as well, yeah, that too. Well, yes, yeah, well, certainly that. One of the reasons why, I, I find Harry Truman really interesting because one of the best biographies I ever read mm. is Truman by the, the famed historian, author, Americanist David McCullough. I've talked about him on the show here mm. before. And he paints such an interesting picture because Harry Truman, even though he was president in the late 1940s, early 1950s, was very much a product of 19th century America. And, mm, okay. and you know, he was a, you know, a Missouri farmer in every mm. way. And he really, in so many ways, and this guy is by no means uh, unimpeachable, all pun intended, mm. in terms of you know, the various things that were said and he said and did. That's not really what I find so interesting. But in so many ways, he encompasses the, the type of 
personality, the type of figure to become president that I think the original founding fathers very much envisioned in that role. Kind of the American dream concept, I suppose, literally to be a Missouri farmer, like coming up from that sort of area. In in so many ways. And he was such Mm. a late bloomer in life as well, but Mm. ridiculously smart. You know, he graduated high school. In fact, he's the last U.S. president not to have attended college. He was smart enough to have done so. His grades were good enough, but he was needed Mm. on the farm. That comes that comes first. Yeah. And, you know, he did a variety of jobs and he, you know, he really came into his own in his early 30s when Mm. He ended up volunteering to fight in the First World War, which he was under okay. no obligation to do, and married his longtime love interest and then got into the, the Pendergast machine, if you guys are familiar with that, <laughs> and kind of worked his way up. And he was by no means an accidental president either. A lot of people like to say that. I'm not going to get into the story about that. But Harry Truman's one of those guys that if you sat down with him with a little bit of bourbon and, you know, (laughs) you just talk in the way that people talk, especially from his era, I think that would be really fascinating to me and and have him open up about his time as president and especially his early tribulations after right after he succeeds Roosevelt when Roosevelt dies, you know, and all the people that he dealt with. And one of the people that he dealt with that I know is of particular interest to you is obviously he had extensive dealings with Clement Attlee. Yeah, no, that's something I was just looking into myself. Yeah, he's got quite the relationship with Attlee. They were both obviously running their respective countries at the same time. That would be deeply interesting to ask. Yeah, and they had... Or we could have them both on. <laughs> well, yeah, I would imagine. So, <laughs> I mean, as, as far as that's concerned, though, they had kind of like a turbulent relationship, but they eventually kind of came to respect each other yeah, and admired each yeah. other. So I... I I like complicated figures. So what's the one where yours, Patrick? So I was more thinking in regard to, I just thought to narrow down the playing field just for myself, I went more with topics we've already covered so far in the podcast. Sure, sure. Because otherwise it's too many people there. Harry Truman's a great idea. Likewise, Clem Attlee would be a great one for myself. Um, in regards to sort of where we've already begun, obviously just various Roman emperors, like Elagabala sort of springs to mind for me, just to get an insight Ooh. into his mind to figure out just how that came to be, really. But something I personally think I would love to do, this might be a bit of a cop-out answer, just a normal Roman citizen. Like, we, we, we know so much about these more sort of historical figures. Of course, this podcast, this question was all about historical figures specifically, so this is a bit of a cop-out. Just to know more about everyday normal life in Rome, that'd be great to have on a a, a textbook plebeian I would Mm. love to have on the podcast. Just pluck him off the streets of Rome at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the second century? Mm -hmm. Just ask, what's going on here? If I had to say something more concise, I said various emperors, Wang Wang Meng would be great to have on. I'd like to ask him, like, what the hell went wrong? Yeah, like how you had it so well going for you. Someone like Julian I'd like to have on. Someone like Constantius II, who we just or talked Constantine. about. Constantine. Or Constantine himself, of course. But he seems to... I feel like figures like that, we know quite a bit about them. But, but like someone like Constantius II, like, why did you put your cousin whose family you killed as your second in command? Did you think that was a good idea? I'd like to ask something like that, those sort of questions. Well, an interesting translation of my mm. last name... Mm-hmm. Modern Italian, Di Costanzo, actually translates to of Constantine. That makes sense, Di Costanzo. Gosh, you're, you, you might be a long, 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 long lost relative of Constantine himself. God help us all Gosh. and everybody that's listening. 
I mean, goodness gracious. Oh, great. So who would be, well, you'd have to have Jesus, right? Because Jesus oh, is yeah, like one of those headline figures you have to have. Yeah, you get, get, get the obvious players in, in yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, I mean like, how do, what conversation do you even have with Jesus? <laughs> you know? Well, it depends because we would be talking to the historical Jesus, I well, guess. Well, yeah, of course. We're talking, yeah, about, yeah. we're talking about the guy sitting the down guy in, in flesh and blood, you know? In bread and wine, I think you mean. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That, oh, boy. But on ching. That's a classic Patrick foot there. So, you know, I oh, mean, I don't I'm even know what you talk about with Jesus. Where do you start? I, I guess you go with the big ones. Like, is it all, just say, is it all real? Like, that's what comes to mind for me. And the other thing I'd be wondering is like, so do you, do you have any hobbies? Yeah. Do you get up to much? Yeah. You know, what's, uh, you know, what do you laugh at? Yeah, what's what's life like back there? Like, what do you do for fun? Like, yeah, who's your favorite disciple? God, I yeah, won't tell you. And, and which one? Which one's the clown of the group? You know, <laughs> which like one's Judas, the clown? He'd be no good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, there's just so many ways you can go with that that I think are really hilarious. Mm. You know, another one that I, I think is, I guess, kind of goes under it. And one mm. of the, and I'm going to preface by saying, you have to be careful with this one because um, he could just hijack the podcast. <laughs> and, and and that of course is uh, Winston Churchill. Of course, because he can he can talk. Yeah. The question is, can you interject quick enough to yeah. be able to get and ask some get a question ask questions? Then. You know, oh, that'd be a great one. Uh, you know, this one is going to be kind of dark, but I think it's kind of obvious. I have to preface this one by saying, where there is no physical or you know any consequences to our oh, well being yeah, and yeah. our family. You know, I'd, I'd be kind of, and, and he'd have to be totally open. That's another thing about this. Mm. All of them, in fact. Joseph Stalin. Of course, that could be a series unto itself. Oh, man. So if I could get you into a room with Joseph Stalin, Paul, I would just, I'll just leave you be. I think I'd pop in and say no, hi. No, don't leave me like... be. I want you there and armed. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll be there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, <laughs> There's well. no question about it. <laughs> oh, um, no, totally. The questions you could come up with. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's totally nuts. Uh, hmm. You know, in terms of folks that we've covered, so like Boudicca would be interesting. Boudicca would be really interesting. One that I just just came to mind for me is Saint Nicholas because he had a fascinating life. Oh yeah, yeah, that'd yeah, be great be, to hear he, about. Yeah, he'd be fascinating. Um, and let him know what's become of his legacy, or having a, a philosophical discussion with Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, that'd be an amazing one as well. Get them. Um, Maximinus from Gladiator in it, get Brian on. Wait, no, sorry, they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but no, um, definitely, yeah, like ask them yeah, just any of the emperors we've covered so far, even going back to Augustus, even going oh, to Augustus, the, the uh, you know, he'd be a real headliner, sort of I think. Thing. Yeah. Germanicus would be interesting. I'm yeah, curious Germanicus. if he was overblown or not. It's, it's, yeah, uh, it's hard to tell. would be really great. Like, so many good ones on there who we've talked about. I, I, just, assume, I just assume Thrax just grunts. Yeah, yeah, that, that probably would just be what he does. Just, just have a good grunt with him every now and then. Yeah, but you no, know. So, so many possibilities. Oh, there's a ton of possibilities here. Mm. So Abraham Lincoln. Yes. That yeah, would be, I'll talk to it. Yeah, Lincoln would be a fascinating one. He'd be a good mm. conversationalist. Mm. Once again, that would be one of those things where you, it not in the same way Churchill would, but Lincoln could hijack the podcast just by telling stories. Yeah, and yeah. anecdotes and whatnot, and you know the fact of the matter is, you get Abraham Lincoln on your show, you just shut up and listen. Yeah, like <laughs> I've, I've somehow managed to get Lincoln on my show. I'm just, I'm not going to say anything. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to some other interesting ones. I get so many presidents. Obviously, Churchill, as you mentioned, Alexander he, Hamilton. Hamilton would be a great one. Just, just going by the musical alone, he seems to be a pretty big deal. 
Um, George the third. Yeah, George was Louis the fifteenth, sixteenth. Well, I'd like to, I would like sixteen and fourteen. Those are the good. Those are the ones that are most interesting. Napoleon. Yeah. Oh, the podium would be incredible. Aristotle, Alexander the Great. I know that's a bit before our time, Aristotle. Yeah, well, yeah, it is, yeah. but that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Tutankhamun, like, so going far back, going back to ancient Mesopotamia, I'd like to talk to people, get a T-Rex on. Let's go that far back. Hey, I'm not going to argue with that thinking at all. <laughs> no, having Napoleon on the show would be fascinating. Imagine, see, here's the thing about this. Mm. This is kind of how uh, I, I, you have to think about it. Imagine we got to have just a 30 to 60 minute conversation with somebody like Napoleon, Lincoln, mm. Washington, mm. Augustus. Mm. Just that 30 to 60 minutes, how much that would change our just entire everything. view of history. Just so like, a, for like humanity as a whole. I guess my other question is what? Where are we, say, in my head, are we just plucking them from history, but are we plucking them from the end of their life, like in their prime? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, like, definitely. We, like, we grab a Napoleon in the height of his power. We're yeah, not, I'm like, not going to, like, snatch him as a kid on Corsica or something. I mean... <laughs> well, or on, on, on uh, St. Helena's, like, you get a miserable old Napoleon on his living in exile on his island. Well, let's put it this way. At that point in time, actually, it might not be the worst idea, because he has nothing else to do. He'd start exactly. his own podcast if he could. That's what... <laughs> Now, I would listen to that. Napoleon stuck on, stuck on St. Helena talking about his life as a podcast. That'd be amazing. Which is, in fact, exactly what he did. You have to he remember. journals. He, well, he didn't keep journals, but he was allowed to have people with him. Of course, yeah. And so it was just like story time all the time. Gosh, that'd be, that'd be incredible. Like, to you and via St. Helena. You yeah. are listening to the AD History Podcast, and we the are joined MB. by one... Yeah, Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, that'd be, <laughs> of course, we've got the language issues as well. In the, in my head, they can all just speak English, or we can speak their language. That sort of thing. Absolutely, Lenin. Both, both Lenin would be an both interesting Vladimir one. and John. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I guess you go to that sort of realm. Oh, you have to go into yeah. that sort of realm. You have to go into that realm. Anyone like that? I'd have Bowie on, of course. That'd be amazing. To talk about that. Even if you can go back, mostly like Mozart, that sort of thing. Go into that sort of or Moses realm of thing. Shakespeare, Mo yeah, everyone yeah. like that. I think Shakespeare would be high up for myself. You know, it's interesting on on the on the Shakespeare side of things because mm. when he was writing and he's putting on these plays, mm. they're going through their own plague. At of the course time. they are. And I'm, yeah, the they go I'm, through the black plate. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I'm going to ask him is like, so, so how'd you beat it? Yeah. I don't think they did really. Didn't a third of the world's population die? No, no, no. I'm just talking about him personally. Like, so, oh, so he, how'd you get around it? Huh? Uh, uh, got any tips? Just, probably just blind the luck, I imagine. Oh, in God. Most cases. Yes, absolutely. So I, George III would be really interesting mm. because he had kind of a, a weird commoner touch. I don't mm. know if you're familiar with this about him. I know that the way he's presented isn't entirely true. On the American side of things, you get yeah. a very propagandized version of him. Yeah, of like this buffoon. And yeah, and he wasn't. You know, it's interesting. And, you know, there's going to be many Americans that say, oh, you're a bloody traitor. Now that I can say bloody. Mm. But the, they're going to say traitor. He was a despot. No, he wasn't. No. He had a government. He had a prime minister. They were calling the shots just as much. Yeah. And... He also, you know, Andrew Roberts, I think within the last year, came out with an, an amazing biography of George III called The Last King of America that mm -hmm. is, is a very even-handed look at it. Because even though Andrew Roberts, and one of my favorite historians, is British, 
he also has a, a very clear affinity and love for my country. So I know that it's mm. a very even-handed approach. You know, as I've gotten older, I began questioning that narrative. Like, is he really, you know, this off the wall, yeah. this much of a goofball? The answer is no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. No. Things could have been a lot worse. So George III is one Victoria, Queen Victoria. I don't know how much she'd want to talk mm. or, you know, Liz yeah, the first. Face. I was thinking um, Tsar Nicholas II. Ooh, boy. Yeah, that would be an interesting That'd one. That would be what a loaded yeah. one. What a different perspective that would be. Oh, God, yes, absolutely. Or, you know, go back to Alexander the First, Alexander the yeah. Second, Catherine the Great. Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Terrible. <laughs> Peter the Great. You know, you yeah. and I getting the Russian stuff will be lost. But, ooh, Leon Trotsky. That would be a very interesting one. That would be a very unique yeah. side of the story even someone like khrushchev that sort of thing would be really oh man as that well. uh, he'd be clipping the, the the he'd be clipping the audio the entire time it's just <laughs> yeah. like you just know he is and you know it's interesting you know you and i obviously don't have communist sympathies but we do find the soviet union really interesting no is it i think a lot of people there's such a, a a very fascinating time in history it's just so it's so different to our world today that you can't help but yeah. look at some of these people and say wow how did this even happen it could kind of give credence, unfortunately, if we were to interview someone like Khrushchev or Trotsky or Stalin or Lenin, it would kind of share some light on current events, unfortunately, oh, to some absolutely. degree. Yeah. Absolutely it would. Um, I'm not interested in talking to Hitler. No, no. Oh, Mussolini. Those two are no, no good. Well, like, no, I, I mean, I could do Mussolini. Mussolini oh, would be interesting. Really? Okay. I find those two kind of like... It's going to sound strange that you sympathize with Stalin, but I find Stalin... A I don't sympathize with Stalin at all, but <laughs> none of these no, guys so, are so, sympathetic. So much sympathize, but he's a, Stalin's an interesting character. I just... W w with Hitler and Mussolini, I just find them to be just not very pleasant people, full stop. But yeah, if you yeah, I mean, they're, they're all yeah. They're, they're all awful. Oh, yeah, they're but all, yeah, they're all terrible, yeah. Here's the thing, though, about the, the Hitler-Stalin thing, because I've been mm. asked about this before. It's like, mm. okay, you so say you find Stalin so interesting, why don't, why don't you find Hitler so interesting? Is because Hitler, as a human being, not as a political figure, you separate mm. the two. As a as a human being, in so many ways, was just so. I mean, he was weird as hell, and yeah. you know, came out of nowhere like so many of these despots did in the twentieth century. But he's not that interesting of a guy personally. Whereas Stalin no. is very complex. There's so many yeah. like nooks and crannies and all these sort of things where you you look at it. And you want to understand it. You don't sympathize with it. You want to understand it. You want to comprehend what made this guy tick. Mm. Because he's so enigmatic to history. It's, he's so hard to understand personally because he was so unpredictable in many ways. And I think he liked that. So I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do the Hitler thing. I just don't have... No, I, likewise. I, I, but, but Mussolini, you would be interested in. Well, Mussolini is a more of an interesting guy. You know, mm. Hitler had a lot of intellectual pretensions, whereas Mussolini had more intellectual credentials. You'd have a more interesting conversation with him. And like I said, talking to them does not mean that we're sympathetic to these people by any means. It's just the quality of the conversation that's possible, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I also would have no real interest in talking to Mao. No, yeah. That, that doesn't really appeal to me. But FDR might be interesting. You know, personally, yeah. FDR and his personal life was kind of a jerk. But, you know, he would be, he'd be fun. He would be fun. He, 
He would be a lot of fun. That you said to Churchill, he'd be very fun as well. To oh talk yeah, to. totally. That you know, it would be one of those things. At the end, you're like, oh man, oh hell. And you know, when you're talking about Churchill in particular, mm. he could be really, really charismatic on a personal level if he thought you were somebody that's important. Yep, that sounds about right. On top of that, and this is the other qualifier. If he wanted to earn his respect, he would n- not even give you the time of day if he thought you were only telling him things you thought he wanted to hear. Kind of counterintuitive yeah. for that large personality, right? Mm, yeah, no, totally. But, you know, there's but a whole bunch be... of people that you could you could go down this, this rabbit hole with. Oh, there's so, so, so I mean, many. I'd like, even someone like Blackbeard I'd like to talk to. Like, sure. such a, a figure who's become such a, just an image. Gandhi. To actually know the real human behind that sort of figurehead. Yeah. I mean, Gandhi would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, Gandhi's a great one as well. You know, interesting conversationalists, inter- interesting personalities here, because we're st- mm. still a podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it can't be someone stupendously... Well, that's the interesting of Attlee. Attlee, despite being such a great prime minister, he was known as being quite a dry, boring person, so maybe he wouldn't be a great person to have on. The reason Attlee interests me mm. is because he made an entire career out of mm. being underestimated. Yeah, and that, there's interest in that, but he's a terribly dry person. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes, like, from the outside, he can kind of seem really dry and kind of mousy. Mm. Obviously, he was Churchill's deputy prime minister in the coalition government that was mm. ruling Great Britain during the Second World War. And Churchill used to quip in private that Attlee was a sheep in sheep's clothing. That sounds about right. But it's not an accurate assessment at all, because he was an extremely effective Mm. political operator. I mean, you think about the Labour Party in those years, Mm. and they had all these sort of factions within them, like any political Mm. party does, right? Yeah, even to this day. Absolutely. And he kept them together and in power for six years. Mm. I mean, you look at modern Britain, and there are two major footprints you have on it. You have Clem Attlee, and you have Thatcher. Mm. Yep. Couldn't be any different. No, that is literally the world. We're living in, yeah. That, 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 I mean, that I, I mean, it. it's that different for history. for a fellow like you, where it's your country, it's your home, and you know, it's something that's intimately associated <laughs> oh, no, with totally. your existence. But when I look at it from the outside, I say to myself, well, I, I definitely see the footprints of both of them. No, they are the two. Like most people who understand any sort of British history will know that we're living in an Atlee's Britain. Now we're living in a Thatcher's Britain. Maybe we'll be living in Johnson's Britain by the time this is done. But I don't. In, I think that would just be an evolution of Thatcher's Britain, but like they are the two, primarily they're the two prime ministers who shaped this country the most in modern history. It's true. And you know, also, you know, looking at sport, I'd love to talk to Babe Ruth. Oh, yeah, that'd be a great one as well. Um, regards to sport, I don't know who comes to mind for myself. I'm not the biggest sports person. Oh, I, I know you're not a huge sports person, but you know, you, are, you know the name Mickey Mantle, right? I know the name. That's as much as I could say. A legendary Yankees center fielder. Mm-hmm. One of the great power hitters of all time. Not mm-hmm. only would I want to have him on, but my grandfather actually met him and had an extended conversation with him. Wow. And, there you go, eh? and for those who are familiar with baseball, none of them will be surprised that it happened in a bar. <laughs> See, a big fan of the booze. Alcoholism was, a, was an issue with him, but he had a lot of really mm. bad physical pain due to injuries that he mm. incurred. Like when he was still in high school, he almost had to have his leg amputated after breaking a leg while playing football. This isn't your grandfather, this is... No, this is Mickey Mantle. Yeah, just, just double-checking. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I remember asking my grandfather, like, what did you talk about? Because Mickey Mantle's from Oklahoma. He's like, we talked yeah. about Oklahoma. People from Oklahoma like talking about Oklahoma. Well, in this case, he did. That, my grandfather, was, was no, no real huge baseball fan or Yankee oh, fan. Okay, so, yeah. you know, 
it's not like he was talking to, to like some yeah. you know you know we're not worthy type person that yeah. was not my grandfather at all but um, that's probably kind of best that you don't want someone too obsessed because then you like lose the plot yeah you know that's one of the things i'm always kind of i don't know if anybody out there has ever met somebody that you kind of admired from afar right my feeling on the subject is i don't really want to meet them i just want to know them the way that i know them i think that's a pretty good way of putting it i haven't met i've no, i've met some people i've met some youtubers who i'm really big fans of and they're really lovely like so i don't know why i'm being quoted names so i've met cgp gray and he was absolutely lovely and um brady harron both in person that's right very you, did, you did you did meet cpg yeah, it was, it was only in passing, really lovely people like that didn't ruin my impression of them at all. So that was, I guess I was fortunate in that regard. No, I mean, th- that, that's interesting. You know, you look even, even further back than that, and especially for like the stuff we've covered, right? The mm. stuff we've covered. The Roman emperors are great. I'd want to mm. meet some of the stronger Han Chinese emperors as well. Like, I'd love oh, to totally, see what their yeah. court life is like. I'd love to meet Genghis Khan. Yeah. And not people die. like Cao Cao. Yeah, yeah. yeah oh, I mean, goodness, imagine the conversation you could have one. with him. Have all three, I can't remember all their names annoyingly, but the three founders of the three kingdoms, have them on one podcast and just let them go for it. Absolutely. Or um, Robespierre. Robespierre, Maximilian Robespierre. They're no totally. Yeah, that would be, that would be a, be really a hell of a thing. Or, you know, Karl Marx. Yeah. That, that'd be interesting to, you know, have a debate with him a little bit. And then, of yeah. course, get, get Adam Smith in the same episode. <laughs> yeah, that would be so, that, uh, that, that them, would be prime time television right there for us nerds. It. Yeah, I mean that'd be nuts. Uh, or uh, John Locke would be another one. Yeah, just Goodness. any philosopher, really. Absolutely. Or oh, Muhammad. Yeah, yeah, that'd be an interesting one as well. Yeah, you know, you just you, you think about that. Uh, uh, I'd love to have Lawrence of Arabia on. I think he'd be an interesting. He'd be an mm. interesting episode. I mean, there's no end to this. No. There is no uh, end to this. Why didn't we ask our audience who they would like, hypothetically, what historical figure they would like to have on this show? Yeah, and I mean, like, who did we miss? You know, who, yeah, who did yeah, we miss nice. on this? There's no question about it. So that's an interesting topic. I mean, those episodes mm. would be insane in the <laughs> extreme. I'll have to think about this even more as, as we go forward. Yeah. I, I'd love to see how Winston Churchill would utilize Twitter. I don't think, was it 280? I don't think that'd be enough characters for him. Not even a chance. And I, I'm, I'm <laughs> a lot per- of chain tweeting. Uh, yeah. And um, I think there's quite a few that if they tried to use Twitter, uh, they would very quickly violate their terms of service. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just a bit. Yeah. I mean, you think about some of these characters, if they had access to the social media that we did, how they would have tried to make hay with it. Mm. Think about that's that's ridiculous. Yeah. Like it just, I think a lot of it would be. Um... It'd just be incomprehensible for them, I imagine. It'd be inter- like I said. It'd be interesting to see uh, Leon Trotsky's YouTube channel. Yeah, just these rants. No, it'd be really interesting. Yeah, it just but, you know, just I love these interesting permutations. But you know, which ones would you miss? What people would you want on the AD History Podcast? Because we're listening. So you know, leave it in the comments below if you're on YouTube. Send us an email. We always love hearing from you guys and. If you want to submit a question for us to answer in the special famous middle segment, go over to patreon.com slash 80 history podcast and donate on the $5 tier or higher. You can ask us any sort of strange historical question or history mm. that's coming, history in general, history that we've done, 
what you and I are doing in our professional life, what it has to do with something with the show. That's all in play. But there's more than that as well. At the minimum $3 a month or higher, you get the episodes 48 hours early, both in their audio and video form, as well as the AD History Director's Cut version, which is a little mm-hmm. bit longer. There's a little bit more extra content in there, so you get it early, you get a bit more. It's a whole lot of fun. And go over to patreon.com slash Podcast and donate and help us continue making the 80 History Podcast you deserve because it is due to your support that this show has been able to blossom and our capabilities and offerings keep getting larger. Mm-hmm. And we could not have a better audience. We could not have better patrons. And we thank you so much. In addition to that, if you, you know, we know times are hard, but depending mm. on the service you're using, for example, if you're on YouTube, hit subscribe, hit the ding dong for the notification, leave a like, leave a comment, help us with the algorithm and let us know you're there because it's great mm. to hear from you guys. We've had no lack of awesome interactions with our listeners. And of course, leave a glowing five-star rating and review if you're listening on Apple Podcast, or go over to Podchaser, which is the IMDB of podcast, and leave the 80 History Podcast a five-star rating and review. And of course, we're also able to do that if you're listening on Audible. That's right. If you love mm. audiobooks, you can also get the 80 History Podcast there. You can rate individual episodes. You can rate the show in general. All of that helps a lot. Helps these, these particular platforms and new people finding gives them an idea as well or if they search it in a search engine these sort of things show up and we'd like to thank those who have done so and before we leave off we want to share one recent really lovely Mm -hmm. review that we got on apple Podcasts recently and i can't even begin to describe how uplifting something like this is when we see it how how much motivation it gives us and so this is over at on Apple Podcast, five stars, titled Very Ambitious History Talk Project. Quote, I just discovered this podcast while searching for, quote, Wong Many, and so started at the very beginning. It's a wonderful way to trip through time. Ever click on a year entry in Wikipedia and keep clicking next, 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 watching the years flow by? The two are good conversationalists and good researchers. The past is a foreign country. They have a philosophy of not judging too harshly the strangeness of previous cultures. It is going to take a very long time, but it's going to be a crazy experience to hear them flow from the Roman Empire, and then in parentheses, and plenty of other continents, civilizations, and people, to the modern world. Close quote. And it's such a lovely, such a lovely review. Thank you very, very much for leaving that, whoever that may have been. We really, really, really do appreciate it. Reviews do help the podcast amazingly. So please do leave one if you can. Absolutely. And it's just it's such an amazing boost to know that somebody found us and they're mm. enjoying our work. And when we hear from you guys, not only is it uplifting, but we get a better sense of how you guys enjoy the show and, and what really speaks to you. Because mm-hmm. if that's something that's not always obvious to a creator, especially in the podcasting world. And I do find it interesting that for those who I have talked to is that they seem to consume our show mostly at night. I found that very interesting, though I did get an email a couple of months back (laughs) who mentioned this this person mentioned that they listened to our show uh, during their their daily run. 
So hmm. it's just amazing to hear how people enjoy the show because wherever you may be, wherever you are listening, wherever you are watching, we thank you so much for your support. And you guys have really made this entirely worthwhile, all the hard work, everything that's gone into it, to know that you enjoy it the way you do. And we love to hear from you, whatever that may be. And we say to both our patrons and our audience, thank you. Us here, you there. And we'll be back right after a word from one, Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Okay, so Paul, you're starting the first half of your two-part epic, which we're actually going to continue into our next episode. And this is about perhaps one of the biggest turning points in Roman history, or you could even argue it's the, the true start of the end in a lot of ways for the Western Roman Empire anyway. And this is, of course, with the Great Migration. So Paul, tell us all about it. Well, I can definitely tell you, my friend, that there's a great deal to say. And this is something that we've kind of teased and we've made reference to in prior episodes coming up, especially doing an entire episode a little while back now where we lay a lot of the groundwork on the mystery and what we know mm. about what we know today is the European Huns and possibly where they came from and, and what they're all about. And this particular piece of history that we're following today is very much a consequence of their appearance coming through Siberia, over the top of the Ural Mountains, and then into the southern European steppe. Because the fact of the matter is, Patrick, mm. there were people living there, and they yeah. had been there for a long time. It is in the late 4th century that many of the historians mark the beginning of what is known as the Great European Migration, a period where you know, Europe underwent a tremendous demographic shift from east to west, my friend, right across the continent. And as is so often the case when a considerable number of people move from one established region to another, especially if it's already populated, conflict often ensues. This is not, you know, this, this is hardly unusual. We deal with it, and we've always dealt with it. We share a small planet. <laughs> That conflict, those conflicts are not always violent, but violence is definitely common, and it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the areas being migrated to in countless ways, especially if they're not expecting it. Think about that. You know, you have all these people that begin coming in over time, and especially in that ancient setting, that must have been incredibly difficult to deal with. You know, these mm. large and foreign influxes of people are just not that easy to manage on a practical level. And this was something that the Roman Empire was about to experience in spades, Mr. Foote. Mm. And in this two-part episode, we're recounting the initial migration of the various Gothic people into the Roman Empire and the many unintended consequences of that ordeal, because there were many, mm. even with the best of intentions. Many historians point to the Great Migration as one of the main factors that led to the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Yet, ironically today, in this episode I should say, it is Rome's East that is our focus. 
the unintended consequences in question resulting in the infamous defeat at the Battle of Adrianople. With this in mind, as we discussed in our introduction to the Huns, whatever their true origins are, man, in the mid to late 4th century, the Huns began to proceed over the Urals and into the steppes, uh, specifically in the region roughly around the Black Sea, which kind of makes sense. As human beings, not exclusively, but many times, we have a tendency to cluster on coasts. There's a mm. lot of advantages to that proximity to oh, the yeah. sea. Oh, yeah. Most, most major cities have some sort of sea-based connection, whether against the sea or against the river. Like, it, so interestingly enough, there's something I actually researched recently. Do you know that we were, we were floating on the sea in boats of various capacities before we had wheels pool? You know, that's really interesting. Where did you pick like, that up? Uh, I did a video about like boat naming traditions, and I found like a brief history of transportation. And minus our own two feet, we were sailing on boats. That was the first thing we did. It just like, <laughs> somehow it, we, early humans realized it was easier to like make something to float on the sea. On the fl- and the sea has its own momentum to guide people. It was it, we were transporting on sea before land, and that's why it's just an interesting thing. It's why we see so many places by water, like these early settlements. That's so counterintuitive to what you'd expect yeah. offhand. Yeah, you know? but no, that's what we were doing first. Like, we'd have to, I think like you didn't have to battle gravity. Like Trying to defy gravity is something we've been <laughs> trying to do for so long. And boats, that isn't a factor for boats. They will just float along relatively easily. You figure in the 100,000 or so years that our species has had evolved yeah. and would become homo sapiens, it's only a little over in the last century that we've really managed to accomplish that sustained flight yeah yeah that 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 that's wild as well but um yeah, yeah we were on boats before horses as well just to add to it like it, it really it really was the first thing we did incredible stuff mm. so 375 is often the year that's quoted mm. as when the huns come marching in oh when the huns come marching in, in. and the various hun chieftains and tribes entered that portion of the steps, they began encountering the people living there, groups like the Allens and the mm. various Goths that populated the area. And it's believed that the various Huns generally followed a path through the steps near the Black Sea, over the Carpathians eventually, mm. and moving generally toward the area of the Hungarian plains north of the Danube. And interestingly enough, I didn't know this until much more recently, apparently the Hungarian plains is one of the most fertile places for agriculture on the entire hmm. continent. How Learn a little something every day. No, I did that, not know that at all. That, and there's the whole thing about the potential connection between the Huns and Hungary. I'm sure yes. you've come across that and name explained at some point. You know what? That's one of the last big things I haven't properly covered. I've done a video on Hungary, but I don't think, because Hungary itself has got a very unique name in its own language. I can't remember oh, yeah. what it is. Um, I've heard it before, yeah. Yeah, uh, as well, the last or big things I haven't covered on the channel, so maybe one there will do. But yes, there's definitely links between Hungary, between the Huns and between Hungary. Name explains gonna name explain. Exactly. Because of this migration, though, it meant those that are already living there were faced with several main difficult choices, and none of them were particularly great, to be sure, which is, you know, one, supplicate themselves to their local Hun ch- <laughs> chieftain that has just come rolling in, yeah. They could resist the newcomers, they could collaborate with them, or they could do what a lot of people did, which was flee west. Or south, potentially. South was always an option. 
and it's fair to say that the various Goth and Allen did all of the above on a case-by-case basis. But you mentioned something about collaborating with the Huns. Like, did, did the Goths ever collaborate with their Hun neighbors, and how did they do that? Okay, this is kind of interesting. Hmm. So, something that I'll, I'll touch on a little bit more later in the episode, mm-hmm. or even possibly in part two, but I think it's, I think it's today. Mm-hmm. That is, and I, I kind of mentioned it in, in the Hun episode, we can't think of the Huns or the Goths as these monolithic people that mm. are this great organized nation. They were very disparate, you know, they had various sects and, and followings and communities where they obviously shared a great deal culturally, naturally, but there also were times when they had conflicting interests, which sometimes was just as common. And one of the ways that they would actually collaborate, interestingly mm. enough, when it, specifically when it came to the Huns, given their great prowess for military combat, is they would actually contract Hun warriors to help them fight other Goth tribes and, and sects and whatever the case may be, uh, in whatever conflict of the moment they may be having. So not mm-hmm. only are you accepting them there generally as, you know, the top of the proverbial totem pole, but you're giving them jobs as well. And, you know, basically putting those very feared skills, and they were feared, make no mistake about it, yeah. to work for them. Yeah, okay. And, you know, there are things yeah. like tribute and all, all those kind mm. of things. But what, one thing is generally for sure, for the most part, just kind of in terms of how information was disseminated about the Huns at this point, is that most of the peoples that they encountered were terrified of them. And at this point, the Romans only had kind of an inkling about what the Huns were all about. They were only working off of these kind of stories as well. Yeah, I guess they would have just been so different to anything Rome really would have had to have dealt with or encountered in in, in their time so far. Undoubtedly. It's going to be something when eventually they do face off, but that's still a little ways off in the future. Attila's not even born yet. No, yes. Over time, the numbers of people that left their original home in there, in that southern portion of the steppe, you know, roughly proximal to the Black Sea, would be quite numerous overall. It was by no means an organized and coordinated trek of, like, whole kingdoms. They Mm. generally moved in, like, smaller caravans, disparately moving in the same general westward direction, with the hope of finding some kind of salvation, you know, just over the horizon. Yeah. Even though they weren't all traveling distinctly together in that organized fashion, they were all kind of generally going in the same direction through the same kind of path. And there was a lot of really good reasons practically for choosing to do that, especially logistically and just, you know, putting food in mouths. Because at that point, they're essentially living off the land. You can't Mm. guarantee when your next meal is going to be. So it made sense that you would move in smaller groups where there was less of a responsibility and much easier to meet that Mm. demand. Mm. So this was not a fun time for them at all. But at least as far as the various Goths are concerned. Eventually, as you could imagine, they would come up on the doorstep of the Roman Empire. And just to be clear, the Goths, they didn't come from the same area as the Huns, did they? They came from more sort of northern Europe, I believe. So the Goths that we're dealing with here Mm. are 
all generally around what we would know today as generally like Crimea, Southern oh, Ukraine, okay. maybe the okay. Kuban. Uh, Apologies. Things, things like I might have the Visigoths. Yeah, yeah. Visigoths, yeah. you know, much beyond common conception. You know, mm. The Visigoths and the Ostrogoths actually don't come around for about another generation. Apologies, apologies. Yeah, there's, okay, some yeah. old sor- there's some older sources that claim that, mm. but apparently newer scholarship has kind of put that to bed. Interesting. Okay, how interesting. Thanks for lighting that up. Uh, thanks for clearing that up for myself. Yeah, that's no problem. Yeah. So, in 376, they showed up on the doorstep of Rome. And, of course, that border that we've talked about so many times is the Danube. Danube mm-hmm. and the Rhine, those are the great natural divides that allowed this to happen. Once again, it all comes back to water. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness, yes. And transportation <laughs> yeah. and all, all sorts of really important stuff. So this particular group of Goths identify themselves as the Tervingi. Mm-hmm. And they were not composed of warriors of an army, though from a distance you might suspect that they were because they were in sizable numbers. But you get a little bit closer, Patrick, you'll mm. see women, children, the elderly, you know, the, the infirmed. And they were a sizable community on the move. In short, they were migrants. Do you have like specifics on how many, how many in numbers? Like, this, like this first big wave of migrants into the Roman Empire into Europe. Do you know like specific numbers, or do we do we have any ideas? So this is very much debated, mm-hmm. as so much of this is right, because mm-hmm. some of the sources at the time are generally believed to have made wild exaggeration mm-hmm. in terms of their numbers. So. In my research, the largest number that I saw in terms of like this first wave, if I understood the information correctly, mm-hmm. was about 200,000. However, Gosh. more modern scholars think that that's pretty wildly exaggerated. Okay. And others have suggested a lower number, like 10,000. But however you want to break down, either way, we just don't know. But it was quite a lot. And as it would turn out, far Mm. more than Rome could reasonably absorb in one concentrated location at the same time. And it's probably worth mentioning here, like, while 10,000 and 200,000 are still fairly big numbers to today's standards, they would have been a lot bigger numbers in in, in these ancient times. Like, how many people even on the planet? Was there even a billion people thought to be on the planet by this sort of period of time? I can't entirely remember. That's like, actually a really good question, but you think the, that 200,000 number, right? Yeah. And you think about the population of Rome in the, the second century passing yeah. a million, that's one-fifth exactly, of the population yeah. of Rome, if indeed it's accurate, even though that's unlikely. So according to a Wikipedia page about historical world population, according to by 400 AD, uh, estimates range from there being 190 million to 206 million people on the entire globe at that time. Oh my so, goodness. Like, you know, that's, that's less. a small fraction of what we have today. Yeah, that's madness. Like, that's, yeah, that's less than everyone in your country pool. You've seen that, that map that has that circle around East Asia and Indonesia, right? Yeah, I find that so fascinating. There's more people live within that than out of that. It's really mind-blowing. I mean, when you yeah. stop and think about it, it does make a lot of sense. Yeah, they're just like, it's, 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 it is what it is that two of the biggest, no, the two most populated countries on the planet share a border. Like, that's very unique. I get it. There's a coincidence or what, but like, it's, 
for, for one reason or another, that area of the world is the most densely populated. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot and, of good reason for it, and I know it's been studied up the yeah. rear end. And even Indonesia is the fourth most populated country, oh, like just yeah, I mean, after. It's so densely packed in certain yeah. places. It goes where it goes: China, India, America, uh, then Indonesia. I think Nigeria or something might be fifth, or Bangladesh might be fifth. It's Bong- well, I mean, if Bangladesh is fifth. I mean, talk yeah. about packing people into a tiny. Yeah. I mean, that's like that's like a sardine can. Yeah, 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 basically. But no, um, fascinating stuff. I'm, I'm always, is. I'm very fascinated by populations, and that's just interesting to see that. One day you're going to have the opportunity to go into the American West, not into like a major city, but going out into the frontier. When there's and just no are, one there. It is just land as far as the it's eye can mad. see. There's, a, there's an old saying about driving through Texas. You can't get through Texas in a day. Mm, because it's just so, it's just so empty. But it's also so populated America. That's the strange thing about it. Like, we cluster. Yeah, yeah, you cluster, which is most people do, I guess. Most places do that, but it's, it's very all or nothing, it feels like, in America. You've got these big cities or tiny towns or nothing. That is very true, my friend. Mm. So, in this case, upon arrival, the Tervingi had a very serious request, not just for the Roman Empire, but for the Augusti of the East, in whose territory they ended up coming upon. And they were requesting permission to enter the Roman Empire and to be settled within its borders. And to present their request, they sent a diplomatic envoy to the Augusti of the Eastern Empire, Valens. They wished to be settled in a location that's known as Thrace, which is in modern-day Bulgaria. So this is very much an Eastern Mm. Empire affair, if you catch my drift, as I was mentioning Mm. earlier. And the deal that they were proposing was, in exchange for granting them this request, they promised a, a large contingent of young men that would serve as recruits in the Roman army. Because the Roman army is always in need of high-quality recruits. Any army mm-hmm. is, but in this case, that's particularly valuable. It's interesting because Valens did, in fact, choose to grant this request, though it took actually a few months because he was dealing and he was off with the Sassanids and it took time traveling in terms of the envoy based on where they, where they were on the Danube and getting down to Antioch. But he did choose to grant the request and he did it for a few reasons. One is the, the ability to gain conscript from the Trevingi was unquestionably an asset. You know, there's just no question about that. It also meant that the draft for conscripts from other provinces in the empire, or arid the east more accurately, could be lessened, leaving those who would have otherwise served then you know, being involved in activities more likely to generate tax revenue. Hmm. An additional one was is that Valens was very much tied up with an ongoing conflict against the Sassanids over Armenia. And, you know, if you're a longtime listener or viewer of AD history, you know that when it came to the Romans, when they eventually got out into the Middle East, furthest it was the Parthians, then their Sassanid successors, is that they were always wrangling over Armenia. And that Armenia at the time, unfortunately, was being used as a, ge- you know, a geopolitical pawn in the region. So some things never change in regards to Rome and their Middle Eastern rivals. 
And the last thing Valens needed was trouble with a disparate migrating Goths along the Danube in large numbers. More to the point, Rome had very few forces protecting that border. But like, how common was it that Rome granted these types of requests? Like, what's the real politic here? What was what was in it for Rome doing this? Uh huh. Well, so I guess it's two questions, really. Yeah. Sure. So, how common was it? Mm. I would. I would. Interestingly enough, more common than most people would think, because in this case, they got a lot out of the deal. And this was more common, you think, even going all the way back to the days of the Republic. They were interested in making lemonade from lemons, or lemon-flavored vodka if you're into that. (laughs) Usually any large migrating group that was granted permission, actually, and this is interesting, were broken up into much smaller groups once their request had been granted and resettlement had begun to take place and they directed them to distant provinces from each other all over the empire. And in the past, many times when something was, you know, somewhat similar occurred, those groups would, you know, and or I should say any time you had basically a foreign newcomer mm. and that for whatever reason they became malcontents, they were usually more successful if they were closer and able to organize and gain the sympathy of their fellow countrymen and king. But of course, if you're settling them all over the empire away from each other, you're not going to get that same level of sympathy because you're the outsider and there's no reason Mm. to believe that you would have made that many friends yet. So why would you even bother taking the steps to break them up? Well, like I said, it's a a security Mm. thing. Okay, yeah. So if... They're worried that these newcomers, if for some reason they become disenchanted or in some way rebellious, mm. they're going to be a lot more trouble if they have more of their countrymen, the people that they entered the empire mm-hmm. with, than they would gaining the sympathy of you know, the various peoples that were already living there. So basically, if you, if you break them up, they have less of an opportunity and an ability to cause a problem if indeed they become disenchanted or angry or whatever the case may be. Hmm. Smaller numbers meant less of a possibility of creating serious trouble for the Romans after resettlement. Hmm. So that, that's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. But in the past, many times when something similar like occurred, you know, obviously they would, a lot of times, and this is, this is another interesting point, a lot of times the newcomers would actually be from like kingdoms or tribes or whatever the case may be that Mm. had actually been recently defeated by Rome in some way. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about taking slaves or anything like that, but essentially their way of life basically got decimated and they came basically with, um, you know, cap in hand and supplicated themselves. You know, that, that was something that happened more often than you would think. Mm hmm. The other thing that was interesting, though, and, and this was a way that they, they took the approach. This is an interesting approach to help that there wouldn't actually even be that sort of discontent. So, yeah, you, you take the, the natural step, the prudent step to break them up, and so they can't really cause trouble if mm-hmm. they want to. But they use the carrot. 
which is to say that in that resettlement, they went out of their way many times mm. to provide them land grants, because a lot of this is just not necessarily subsistence agriculture, but certainly, hopefully, commercial as well, to give them land grants in places where land was fertile and there was a lot of potential. Mm. So, in doing so, it gave them, the newcomers, a taste of what was possible. You know, a, a genuine prospect for prosperity. And when, you, when, you, when you're given that, and, and you're, you're saying, you know, make the best of it, you know, we're, we're giving you good land. Mm. And if you are willing to, to work for it and, and learn and, you know, invest yourself, invest your life, Rome can do a lot for you. And generally, when you have prosperous people, you also have peaceable people. And this is a great example of a quality about Roman power going back a long way, Hmm. which is that we so often think about hard military power when it came to Rome, who Hmm. they conquered, who they fought. But in equal measure, and I would even make the argument that possibly greater is that the Romans also possessed a significant amount of soft power. So things mm. like culture, language, way of life, things of that nature, those things that are in some ways quite intangible, but they can prove very attractive. And mm. you say, you know, there's something about how these people live that, you know, that really connect with me and that it is, it, you know, I want to be a part of that, yeah, which is Rome, a lot better than having to hit them over the head and force them into it. Yeah, Roman culture has always been appealing, especially back in its prime, I can imagine. There would be an alert to wanting to live like that. Absolutely. So whether it be the land grants of desirable land or Roman Latin culture, or whatever the flavor of it was in the empire, because that always kind of differed depending when and where you were in the empire. It's something you kind of even see to this day. People want to go live, not even not even in other countries, in different parts of their own country. People want to move to places where they like the culture. Like That's something we see so often here in the United States. See, yeah, you, like, you talk about people wanting to move out west, people wanting to move over to the east, especially in the USA, like, here, like people want to move to the south, that sort of thing. People want to move north. People want to move to different countries because they like sort of the culture of that country. It's something, something you still see to this day, really. That sort of soft power countries have. There, there's no question about it, mm. and it, it is very powerful. Mm. But you know, TLDR: the carrots, carrots, carrots. Yeah. The Romans knew how to incentivize. It's interesting because obviously we mostly think of the Romans through this sort of martial lens. But literally from the very beginning of the show, they we've seen they've actually been so good at dangling that carrot. And the Roman, as the creators of an awe-inspiring ancient superpower, clearly understood the power of incentive. They knew, hey, if if, if you want to work with us, you know, they, they, they could work out a bargain. And they definitely wanted others to prosper in their system. They didn't want to just be these be-all-end-do rulers. They didn't want to have a kingdom full of just slaves and turfs. They wanted a kingdom where everyone prospered, where even the normal population sort of thrived. There's no question, because mm. it, it's, it's those people 
those everyday Roman subjects or mm. citizens on the street that was so important that they buy into this. Exactly, yeah. The new migrants in this case, especially the various Gothic tribes of this time that, that took the route that the Trevingi were going along and they were not alone, they weren't even the only Goths that called themselves Trevingi, mm. interestingly enough. And, you know, there was obviously something very attractive about living within the protections of Rome and its societal organization and the genuine opportunities for prosperity. And it was a hell of a lot better than playing with fire in the company of the Huns. Yeah. However, when Valens gave this permission, it did come with a number of caveats. You know, this wasn't just a blanket. Come on in, guys. We're going to have a whole lot of fun. It's going to be a whole, whole, whole hoot nanny. Mm. So one is the Trevingi had to convert to Christianity. And he actually ended up converting to Arianism, which in this case was Valens' preferred flavor of Christianity, if I recall mm. it anything. And it is believed, but sources do not definitively confirm, that the Trevingi had to surrender their weapons. This is okay. a kind of an interesting thing that's going to come about a little bit later on, so everybody listen closely. Yet, for a myriad of reasons, this stipulation structure is not clear to historians, namely whether it was a symbolic act of public genuflecting only done by you know, a chosen few Trevingi for you know, the benefit of public consumption. Uh, because if the idea was to totally disarm the newcomers, it wasn't all that successful because apparently a lot of them kept their weapons. And it's likely mm. that they did so because they were going to use those weapons once they entered the Roman army, mm. which is interesting because the Roman army, uh, you know, they, they're able to produce a great deal of weapons. But apparently in this case, and I'm only spitballing here, Patrick, Mm. I do think there probably is some logic in the idea of having them retain the weapons that they had become so proficient with. Yeah, like, yeah, people are good with specific weapons. Like, what you're not making very good soldiers if you're not letting them use the weapons you're not sort of special. You're not a specialist with. Absolutely, and mm. of course, like I said, one of the big things was that they were going to give up a lot of their young men so they could go serve mm -hmm. in the army. Mm-hmm. But whatever the case was with the weapons, the movement of these peoples across the Danube was immense. And when I mean across Danube, I really do mean across the mm. Danube. And I've not found any sources which suggested how many, you know, exactly how long it, that process took to get these various peoples across, whether it was mm. 10,000 or 200,000, though I imagine 10,000 didn't take quite as long for that. That was the case. What? No. You know, undoubtedly, because the, the, given the river size and the lack of resources to successfully ferry a lot of people across in a short period of time, you know, it wasn't always entirely that successful. And they weren't just trying to ferry people over, but they were ferrying their entire lives with them. And, you know, if you had to guess, you know, just being realistic at the very least, it probably took weeks to do that. It's hard to imagine it took less. So did the Romans help with getting these people up the Danube? Okay, yeah. So basically the Roman forces did try and assist, but, you know, the apparent scale of the challenge was beyond their material and human resources at that point. There's much recounted about people drowning for reasons up to and including trying to swim across the damn Ooh. thing. Yeah, that's not, that's not going to go well. Not wise. Not wise. 
But this was just the beginning of a perfect storm for the disaster that was slowly lumbering its way towards disaster. <laughs> and that disaster is can be spelled with a single four-letter word that starts with F. Food. You keep armies, you keep, if you keep people fed, you keep people happy. There's no question about it. There's, it is the basic, the most basic of mm. our needs, mm. to be sure. So when Valens granted permission to the Trevingi to settle in the empire, it seems that there was an understanding that the resettlement could not happen on the fly because resources were just stretched thin all around. And from what I can tell, it was a massive undertaking for an empire that was just all over the place. They had a lot going on, to be sure. And with all this in mind, and with greater priorities and, you know, basically trying to avoid any sort of greater potential disaster, interestingly enough, Valens agreed that the Romans would provide food to the newly arrived Trevingi migrants during the settlement process. And this was a rather generous gesture. And honestly, it might be an indication of how badly Valens needed, manners, you know, needed matters under control on the Danube. Yeah given his Sassanid troubles. But once again, this was no small task. No, feeding 10,000 people, feeding 200,000 people, that takes, that's quite, takes quite a lot of skill. Do you have any idea of how they sort of did this or how they were managing to feed themselves? Like how, the, how these migrants were even feeding themselves before they got help from the Romans? Surely like fishing potentially, if they're going down the Danube, that might have been a good source. Any various, I'm sure there that mm. happened across, you know, with whatever body of water that they happened to mm. come across in their trek from, you know, basically what we consider today, like around Crimea, southern Ukraine, yeah. whatever the system may be. So I kind of mentioned it briefly earlier, but it's reasonable to extrapolate that they were living off the land. Mm. So in this case, and it, it was a serious logistical challenge they dealt with throughout. And apparently this may be one of the reasons that the, the migrating Goths traveled in the smaller bands that I mentioned earlier, because do it in smaller bands, you're more likely to be able to meet the needs of the smaller group around you, as opposed to having many, many more mouths. It's just kind of the reality of it. It's yeah. far more achievable. It's far more realistic, though. And you know, basically complicating matters even more, it is speculated that these various groups of Trevingi and Goths likely consumed a large portion of their own reserve provisions during the prolonged delay that I mentioned briefly earlier that occurred uh, when they sent their envoy asking Valens for permission to settle in the empire and the additional time it took for him to reply. Interestingly enough, great historian author Adrian Goldsworthy in his work How Rome Fell, Death of a Superpower, compared the task of keeping these Goths fed during the resettlement interim after, after gaining permission to that of marshalling supplies for a Roman army preparing to go on campaign. <laughs> and Goldworthy's words, quote, the Trevingi were equivalent in numbers to a very large Roman expeditionary army, and it usually took a couple of years to mass the grain and other supplies needed by such a force. The officials on the Danube had no more than a few months to prepare. Close quote. And for all intents and purposes, Mr. Foote, this mm. was just the beginning of the struggle. The Trevingi were receiving ration amounts that seemed 
to barely keep their head above water to stave off outright starvation. Dude, like, was this all simply a matter of lack of preparation, or, like, was there more at play? Like, do you think anything sort of, like, treacherous was going on? A sort of dirty pool, I think, is a term you want to use yourself. I'm going to throw it back to you. Anything like yes. that happening in, in this scenario? Hank Hill would be very proud that you use that particular <laughs> term. So there's a lot of questions about how what was about to happen transpired and, and the difficulties around this. Mm. So follow along with me, y'all. This is interesting. So here are basically the questions, right? Mm. Did the Romans actually have the food that they promised? Did Valens think they had the adequate provisions but was misinformed? Was the food somehow mistakenly transported elsewhere, which is That'd be baffling. That would be unbelievable. That'd be so baffling. It, it, I, mm. I can't even accept it. And, I, and even for the truth, somebody deserves to be executed for that. <laughs> yeah. Was Valens deliberately providing as little food as possible to keep the Trevingi fully reliant on Rome and making them pliable and more cooperative for Rome's benefit by just stringing them along and just keeping their heads above water? Insofar as I know, Patrick, none of these questions have been adequately answered, mm -hmm. nor is there a surefire piece of evidence from which to base even suspicions. But whatever the case, it was a seriously bad job across the board, and the story gets much darker from here, to the point where I just have to warn our listeners that some of this is going to be a little disturbing. So if you're, if you're not into that and you just simply want to heed my warning, skip ahead a few minutes because it's, it's, it's not great. But in all fairness, the show is rated E for explicit because history can be pretty darn explicit sometimes. Yeah. According to Ammianus, who was a Roman soldier and contemporaneous historian, so he was keeping records of these events, if I understand correctly, largely as they were happening. Wow. Which is really rare. A great source to have. Absolutely. In AD history, you and I are always celebrate anytime mm. we get some sort of contemporaneous We'll take account. anything. At this time in history, we'll take anything. Oh, God, yes. I mean, you know, 1,600 years ago, my yeah. goodness, it's like Christmas morning for us. Yeah. And he claimed that a local commander who went by the name of Lipacinus, extorted prized possessions that he coveted from the Goths for food. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's not, not the part that is, is bothersome here. What is far more heinous than even that, local Roman officials and officers facilitated the nightmarish trade with the Goths of exchanging one of their children for one dog, consuming the dog meat for food. That, that's... How many more wrongs can I get in a sense? I, I, know, I know about the ground rules. That, okay. Yeah. I understand that, but th this, is, this is really heinous. Trading children for dogs is bad, and consuming the dogs is bad as well in different cultures of course i know there are like dog has been a, a food source in 
coaches. Yeah, yeah. No, there, there's there's no question that. about it. But but for me, yeah, obviously the eating of dog meat is one thing. That's not the mm. thing that bothers me. It's, it's the, the idea. And in you know, in an outright extortion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's very hard. Mm. This is one of those times where, as a historian, when you're looking at events within the context that they occurred, mm. you you have to kind of separate yourself as the historian and as the human being. Mm. And that's, that's not always easy to do. No. And this is one of those times that's very difficult to do. Yeah, that's not great. <laughs> no. So no. I think we're kind of getting the picture here yeah. of how quickly this is all starting to come apart. Mm. And more to the point, and this is something we'll, we'll discuss, I think, in all likelihood in the second part mm-hmm. of this particular presentation, it may be the benefit of hindsight, but by the end of it and all the accounting, you have to, you're going to end up asking yourself, is it hindsight that we say that all of this could have been so easily avoided, or would it have been as easily identifiable at the time? But we're going to leave that to the very end of the second part, and you can judge that mm. for yourself wherever you may be watching or listening. Mm. So this is where hell begins breaking loose. Following the end of the transit over the Danube, finally complete it, <laughs> Roman commanders guided the Trevingi to settle outside the city of uh, Marcianopolis, which is in Dev, you know, which is in uh, Devnaya, Bulgaria. So we're all still kind of in the same general region, mm. thankfully. Yet they were, you know, the Trevingi actually refused entry into the city itself. Not very welcoming, to be sure. Mm. I, you know, I'm sure there were many reasons for that, but it, you know, that's not great. And in the great confusion and distraction of getting the Trevingi moving, you know, whether it be over the Danube, all the issues with food, getting them to their current location, their fellow Gothic brethren, the Gruthingi, who, <laughs> who conversely actually made the same request to Valens and was refused. <laughs> They took advantage of the situation in the chaos and they illicitly crossed the Danube on their own initiative. That's what I found weird here is why did Valens allow one group, the Trevingi, in but didn't allow the Gruffingi in? Why let one in but not the other? Well, you know, why? If, if he was what, so keen what, to have people in. Here? Yeah, if he was so keen to have people in, regardless of his own supplies of food, why not let everyone in? Well, a line that you've heard me say a few times before is that this point isn't exactly clear. Mm. So if you're following a common line of logic, why should the Grithingi be treated differently in this case, especially when there are so many potential benefits? And once again, the aforementioned Adrian Goldworthy postulates that it may be due to some kind of distinctly differing history between the Grithingi and Rome, as, you know, compared to uh, the Trevingi, or it could have even had something to do with Valens himself. Prior to all this, about a decade mm. prior, uh, he had some dealings, I believe, with the Grithingi, where they actually answered the banner of Procopius, who was a, a descendant, but also, I believe, part of the House of Constantine, and that they had a long-standing agreement aligned, despite the fact that, even from a decade ago, Constantine the Great had been dead for quite some time, mm. that they would come to the aid of any member of 
his house. And they didn't even really have that much of a great impact because they were kind of dragging their feet, if I understand correctly. One way or another, one thing is for sure, Valens was less than impressed when he ultimately questioned them later on. But it could be something even more prosaic than any of this, Patrick. Hmm. And that's that Rome at the time and at that location within the Empire, especially given everything that was happening, they simply didn't have the resources to properly administer the immigration of that many additional Mm. gothic peoples. Realistically, honestly, and you know how this is a lot of times, Mm. it's never always just one definitive answer. Everyone wants one definitive answer. Mm. When you look at the reality of it, it could be a combination, or it could have been a little bit of all three. The match in the gas tank was about to be lit in the city of Marcianopolis during a dinner hosted by the aforementioned Lupsinius. For the leaders of the Trevingi, and who were basically in charge of the throngs of Trevingi that were camped outside the city, it appears that uh, Lupicinius had put on the song and dance to give him the opportunity to get all of these leaders in one place, because it was basically a banquet. So they invited the leaders into the city. You know, they had this, you know, basically diplomatic soiree, if I were to call it anything then get them all into one place to give him the opportunity to either arrest or execute them. And for the most part, apparently this was something that was known to happen in Roman political life. The Trevingi wouldn't have been familiar with this, obviously, but it definitely wasn't outside of the political Roman playbook, which is succeed or die. Mm. And something like this is almost child's play compared to the kind of stuff that they had known to do in many respects because politics was a life and death sport yeah. for these folks. Yeah. So I don't know why he thought this was a good idea at the time, and I cannot even begin to speculate what he was thinking because this guy must have had very, very little self-awareness because how could you not recognize that you were playing with fire in this case? You have people that are out camped out there. They're basically on near-starvation rations. Mm. And you know very clearly, for the most part, and we have no reason to believe otherwise, that the one thing that Valens really wanted, especially considering he granted such generous terms for them to enter, all told, Mm. the last thing you wanted here was some sort of, you know, potential, you know, rowdy and conflict. And you didn't want to create a problem that didn't need to be created. Mm-hmm. In this case, as I mentioned, what Lupicinius did was a Roman political hallmark. Yeah. Just the idea of getting them all in one room and basically yeah. decapitating them. Though the arrow of fate turned when apparently an unrelated argument turned into a scuffle that occurred near the Trevingi settlements outside of the city between the Goths, a small number of Roman soldiers, and a few locals. And it quickly escalated into a minor military clash that drove off the Roman soldiers that were involved. And Lupicinius, upon hearing of this, moved on his original plans for the leaders that he basically had that trap diplomatic soiree, where he took the leaders, the chieftains, and he put them under arrest and then ordered the execution of their personal attendants. And word of this spread very quickly to the Gothic camps outside of Marcianopolis. And suffice it to say, 
that they were less than pleased by this turn of events, and in haste, various Gothic warriors basically rose up out of the camp and made their way towards the escalating struggle near the city. And a Goth leader by the name of Fridigern, who at the time was present at that trap diplomatic soiree and was actually under arrest, managed to sweet-talk his way in the case of Lupicinius to release him with the understanding that he would try and defuse the conflict and be the cooler head that helped bring everything under control. And from all I can ascertain, it doesn't appear as if he was really even given the chance to do so. Mm. It was getting out of hand that quickly. And the fact of the matter is, war and violence sing its own song. And this was a most unexpected, though all of the ingredients were there, to create a ridiculous, open and prolonged, protracted conflict. Mm between these Goths in the Empire and the Romans. And in haste, Lupicinius basically corralled his local forces in the town to march against the outraged Travingi on the distant outskirts of Marcianopolis. Sources say they were about 10 miles out. But hmm. the Goth warriors present were not only readily assembled, but they apparently quickly cut down the contingent that Lupicinius hmm. had brought with him. And he escaped with his life, but honestly, it might have been better had he perished, because his actions, not only that night, but the persistent mistreatment of the Travingi up on, you know, under his protection up to this point, were undeniably and had to be quite pivotal in provoking a conflict Valent and Rome were desperate to avoid at all costs. Gosh. And we will pick up the remainder of this story and this set of events in regards to the infamous Battle of Adrianople mm. and the war that nobody expected but undoubtedly needed to fight, and certainly in the case of the Goths. What do you think, Patrick? This is, this is some harrowing stuff. It is some really harrowing stuff. I'm looking forward to seeing how it all plays out in a morbidly fascinated way. Um, it's really interesting to hear you break this down so tremendously. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing part two of this. I'm looking forward to relaying it to you. It's going to be a great conversation next time mm. around. But us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from one. Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in history, as well as my reader submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II related questions, which if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye. Thank you. And take care. Yes. Thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. 
Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching ADHistoryPodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at ADHistoryPodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.